0: You are listening to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast, episode two, Tech Talk on GMPs. Welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast, where we are building profitable food businesses, one product, one process, one thought at a time. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steele. Hello, awesome people, and how are you? I am Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steele, and I am coming to you back on the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast. And today, we are going to dive right into good manufacturing practices. So, the podcasts that I'm bringing you are part of a... 12 um, week cycle on all the four different pillars of what we do here um, at the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute. Uh, and I talked about these in episode one, but just to recap, uh, we do uh, technical help. You know, I'm a subject matter expert in food safety. And that's the pillar that we're working on uh, right now. We are going to have presentations on marketing, because believe it or not, your food safety starts with your marketing. And I'm gonna go through that. um, And that's a huge part of of what we do here at Durago Food Safety. We're gonna be talking about employee empowerment. You empowered as an employee and what that means, Your employees themselves empowered so that they can carry out the mission and the vision of the business, and then finally uh, life coaching. So what I did in that first episode when we went over the model, that is all about life coaching. And so what I'd like to encourage you to do is when we think about our circumstances and the thoughts that they create, I'm going to be going over good manufacturing practices today, and you're going to have thoughts that come up about good manufacturing practices. And I want you to try and separate your thoughts into like actual technical questions. Like how do the FDA or the USDA interpret this, or what is it that they commonly do and separate out those questions from the questions of overwhelm and mind management and, uh, can I do this versus how do I do this? These tech talks are mostly about how do I go about doing this? And then the life coaching and employee empowerment and those kinds of things, that's all about, can I do this? Okay. We're always happy to take your questions. You can always ping us at info at com, And here on Anchor FM, there are ways for you to leave us messages on the on the podcast, uh, episode itself. And then plus we're always over at Facebook. You can post on Facebook or send me messages from Facebook and that sort of thing. And so with that, what I wanted to do is I wanted to go over, uh, what good manufacturing practices are, why they are important, and then dive into some of the really super, technical stuff about good manufacturing practices. So uh, make yourself comfortable. If you're driving, keep your hands on the wheel and keep your eyes on the road uh, and let's get to it. So the there was a sea change that some of you may know about in uh, good manufacturing practices here in America. And our good manufacturing practices are published or promulgated and, um, and created by the Food and Drug Administration. Now, if you have questions about the difference between the Food and Drug Administration and the USDA, I'm totally happy to, to go over that. Um, that information is out there on the web. Ask questions if you need. Uh, but the Food and Drug Administration, under the Food Safety Modernization Act, rewrote good manufacturing practices, okay? And they took the previous... Code of Federal Regulations, 21 CFR 110, and made it into 21 CFR 117, and then they broke it up into many, many, many more parts and added more regulation to it. And so today, as part of this talk, we are just going to be talking about 21 CFR 117 Part B. And the reason that you want to be able to understand this and listen is because, you know, it's super important to your financial picture to understand whether or not you're spending your money on your good manufacturing practices well, okay? You need to have confidence in understanding, like, where you are and where you need to get to with your good manufacturing practices. You know, when we talk about implementing and and creating results out of your GMP program, a lot of it has to do with safety. You know, we talk a lot about all sorts of kinds of safety here at um, at the podcast, and storing things well, locking away your chemicals, making sure that your people are healthy before they interact with the food that's a whole safety conversation and then finally, what I want you to consider is is that good manufacturing practices create the conditions to create safe food, okay when you are doing that, you are creating the building block, the cornerstone building block of building the food business of your dreams. Without GMPs, no matter what your size, or whether you do retail or wholesale, I have to tell you, without GMPs, you're really not going anywhere. Okay. This is so important that in, uh, at the end of the episode, um, I'm going to um, give you uh, uh, access to our facilities standard operating procedure. Okay. I know I haven't gone over SOPs yet. I want to get some big things out. So, you can start thinking about them first. And then we'll talk about how we do documentation and all that good sort of stuff. Okay. So, stick with us to the end and you'll get access to our facility standard operating procedure, which will really help you implement GMPs in your program. So, with that said, let's dive into what GMPs actually are. Okay. So, these GMPs were rewritten when the Food Safety Modernization Act came about when Obama signed it into law in, uh, I believe, January 4th, 2011. And these GMPs have been rolling out since then. Um, They affect all food industries here in the United States because... Either you're regulated by the FDA, and this is an FDA law, or you do meat and poultry and you're regulated by the USDA, which has a memoranda of understanding with the USDA, and you have to follow these good manufacturing practices, okay? And so either way, the law, um, this particular part, part B, is written fairly well, fairly – these are – of all the controversial things about FSMA, Part B is not one of them. Okay, they updated it from one hundred and seventy or er, uh, one hundred and ten, um, and added things about allergens and cross contamination and training. Okay, and so we're going to go through this so that uh, you really understand what you need to do. Okay. I'm not going to be reading section numbers. I'm going to be summarizing the sections uh, if you want to really super understand this of course google twenty one cFr one seventeen Part B and you'll get the text of the regulation and that's a great way to try and understand it these these you know i want to make I want to make a point, and this is something that's going to come up in multiple podcasts. The language of these is written um, for lawmakers. It is written for people who do food safety for a living. It is not written um, for people who have to execute food safety for a living. It's written for me. It's not written for your line workers. Okay, And that makes it super hard uh, in some cases for entrepreneurs to try and take this regulation that they have to adhere to and turn it into an actionable standard operating procedure. So what I want you to consider is, is that when you are trying to turn this into an actionable standard operating procedure, please do not cut and paste the language of the regulation because it's not going to do any good. Yes, you'll have the SOP. And if you have to pass an audit, sure, that's fine. But in terms of actually affecting Food safety, you're not going to do much because nobody's going to read your SOPs. And the only reason that we create documentation around food safety is because it advances our business. It helps us create data. That data helps us create information. And then we take that information and create actionable knowledge out of it. That's why we do all the documentation and all the records review and all that good sort of stuff, which we will totally dive into in this, um, in coming podcasts. Okay. So good manufacturing practices, these start with the people in your facility. Okay. When we bring microbes and problems into our facility, there are only a few places it can come from it either can come in on your raw materials or it can come in on your people. Like, that's pretty much it. It can sometimes it comes from the facility itself, but you know that also you know came from our materials, right? So uh, there are a couple of things that I want to emphasize here. Is that um, when we do wholesale food manufacturing, it is different from the retail food code. The only thing that's pretty much the same is disease. Okay, people with upper and lower respiratory disease cannot work around the food. All right, and people with upper and lower gastrointestinal disease can't work around the food. Okay? If you are yellow and you have a stomach ache, you can't work around food. Now, what I want people to consider is is that the people who work in food are generally doing it because they need the paycheck. Okay? And if you have a documented food safety system and you have somebody who is too sick to work around the food, Healthy enough to come in and do office work, um, and is a good employee needs needs the paycheck. You know, yeah. I mean, you have these people in your in your facility. What I'd urge you to consider is that those people are super good people to have actually read your SOPs. So after you put all of this together, you're going to have a sick employee. Bring them into the office on the days that they're um, not feeling well enough okay, to work on the line and have them read and update your SOPs. This does a couple of things. One, it's super awesome training for them. Two, it helps them understand the documented food safety system. And three, I assure you, reading SOPs is not so incredibly interesting that they're going to try and get off the line frequently to sit down in an office and read SOPs. Unless of course they're like me and they really like SOPs. But if that's the case, then you have a goldmine and you need to put them in your QA department. Okay. So that's disease control, upper and lower respiratory disease, upper and lower gastrointestinal disease. The second thing that I want to talk about is washing hands. Okay, if you Google the CDC method for washing hands um, and do that in your facility, you will solve so many food safety problems. Okay, so <laughs> just remember that. <laughs> okay, you you know, last week we talked about um, you miss more by not looking than by not knowing. Um, that's one tenet of my food business. Um, the second tenet of my food business is don't eat the poop. Like I swear to God, I have built an entire half a million dollar food business, food safety business based on don't eat the poop. And the biggest way to not eat the poop is to wash your hands. Everybody got it? I'm sure you've got it. Okay. Now that brings us to gloves. Gloves are not a substitution for hand washing. Okay. I hate going into places where people are lackadaisical about, washing their hands because they're like, oh, I'm just going to put gloves on. I promise you gloves are not a substitution for hand washing. You do not, if you're in wholesale production, have to use gloves. If you're producing under the retail food code, your food code might dictate you have to use gloves for retail food production. By and large, we're not talking about this on this podcast. There are other podcasts that serve that. Um, But if you are doing wholesale food production for USDA or FDA... You do not need to wear gloves. Now, there might be good, compelling reasons for you to do so, but the law doesn't require it. Okay. Other things that we run into in terms of personnel and personal hygiene programs—that's what this SOP usually comes out of on on the this first GMP um, jewelry. We don't wear big jewelry, you know, no any big engagement rings, um, plain. Wedding bands are totally fine. Earrings uh, in many bigger facilities are not allowed out on the production floor. I highly recommend against facial piercings um, for reasons that we will get into when we talk about microbial hazards, as I say, get all the tattoos you want. Um, so I think that there is a lot of that um, that you can do to um, um, help your employees with the jewelry. Um, issue. If I have had people who have implants, uh, like in their face and things like that, and they just can't work in a ready to eat facility, because that's the other thing is you have to, you have to assess the relative risk um, of any facial implants um, or or jewelry or gauges or whatever to the food. And the risk is much, much higher in a ready-to-eat food and a cooked food versus not a not ready-to-eat or food that doesn't go over through a heat treatment. That's because of staph aureus. Again, we'll talk about that when we get to microbial hazards in another podcast. Okay. Um, So we cover hair um, in hair nets. I'm often asked about ball caps and things like that. Again, it depends on the risk of your food. Um, if you are creating a raw food, it matters much less. Uh, however, I would say that you know common hairnets that you see in the food industry—they're cheap. You can buy them from the Granger or the Uline catalog, and um, those are really what's appropriate in um, food production. Okay, and then the other big thing is that employees cannot eat or drink on the on the floor. Okay every time you eat or drink, you have to go wash your hands, which means you can't be eating or drinking or really touching your face while you're on the floor. All right. So that's, those are the, those are the, you know, I guess the basic tenets of a a personal hygiene program. All right. And so that personal hygiene program and how you keep your people from affecting your food is super duper important. Okay. That's if you're not washing your hands correctly, you're not doing anything else correctly. And when I go in and I do an audit, I watch people wash their hands. And that's one of the really good ways that I know whether or not I'm going to have a super long day. Okay. So that brings us to plant and ground. So this is your building, your building fabrics. Um, do you have holes in your building? Um, do you have, um, uh, like, is everything mowed? Um, are things stored correctly? Are your roads around your building um, suitable? Uh, Do you have like large puddles? And one of the things that you should be aware of is that when we talk about listeria and listeria contamination, um, listeria oftentimes walks in on the boots of the people who work for you, okay? It's uh, what we call a commensal organism in the soil, and it comes in on the dirt on their shoes, all right? So, the less dirt you have around your facility, the less standing water you have around your facility, the easier time you are going to have in fighting listeria. Okay, um, so there um, there are some other things to think about. Um, your plant should be constructed so that um, that you're not um, you're not walking dirty through clean, basically um and it has to it you you've got to have enough space but keep in mind um space can also equal waste um, and as my dad used to say, crap expands to fill the space occupied. All right. So don't go get a gigantic factory just because that's the one that's available. Or if you do cordon off a section that you're actually going to use. Okay. Um, you have to create a factory that is cleanable. All right. Brick walls, delightful though they may be and look good in your Instagram posts. Um, uh, you can't clean them. <laughs> All right, <laughs> and so you have to you have to think about how you're going to clean floors, walls, and ceilings so um that you can manufacture your food safely and if you're in a not ready to eat facility it's easier to keep it clean because you don't um necessarily have to clean floors, walls, and ceilings every day um, most of my folks who do ready to eat uh, foods, they come in and they foam down floors, walls, and ceilings every single solitary day. So when you're thinking about designing your own facility, you got to think about, okay, not only how's the, how's the food going to flow, but how are the people going to flow during both production and sanitation? All right. If you think about that, you're going to design your facility and your facility, um, flow way better. Lighting, everything has to have adequate lighting. It's pretty obvious when you don't have adequate lighting because you have big shadows, um, and it's super hard to see. Um, a lot of times, this is mostly a problem in your walk ins and in your coolers and all that sort of stuff. Um, but lighting solutions are pretty uh, easy and obvious in many places. Um, so, have adequate lighting. You should be able to walk in there and be able to read a piece of paper, okay? Because your QA techs are going to be walking in there reading generally white pieces of paper with black ink. Uh, And then um, the next thing is air handling. All right, condensation can be a super big problem. There are many food production facilities that have inadequate refrigeration and cooling systems that do not pull the condensation out of the air. Condensation is a complete no-go in food production. It cannot rain on your food in your factory, and you must take care of it. All right. So that sort of brings us to um, sanitary operations, which um, talks about how um, you keep your facility from falling into your food. All right. Preventative maintenance plans keep your facility from falling into your food. Okay. And then you have to create your maintenance so that your maintenance guys or whoever is doing the maintenance isn't cross contaminating. OK, um, and so they have to they have to, like, wash up just like everybody else. OK, um, people who do sanitizing, um, you know, so there's cleaning, which is getting rid of gross like food or soils, as we call it, on the um On the uh, production equipment, on the food contact surfaces, you know, you got to scrub to get off, you know, fat and and proteins and things and rinse and you put on soap. Soap destroys a lot of microbes, right? Um, But all the chemicals that go with that have to be stored correctly. Okay. (laughs) So you got to store everything. Um, You got to label everything. Um, you got to, um, and, and you should really only have the chemicals that are applicable to what you are doing. There's nothing that irritates me more than when I walk into a shop and they've got all sorts of random, you know, like maintenance chemicals, WD-40 and cans of paint, um, you know, for paint colors that nobody's seen in 20 years, (laughs) like get rid of that stuff. All right. Pest control. I, you know, we're not going to really dive into pest control, um, you know, Uh, Controlling for pests is you must control for pests in your facility. And so that's, you know, ants and flies and other sorts of bugs, mice and rats and that sort of thing. Um, I highly recommend using a professional pest control company. Okay. But using a professional pest control company that knows how to do commercial level pest control. You must get a binder. You must get a map. You must get um, their standard operating procedure for how traps are checked and all that good sort of stuff. Okay. Okay you must have food contact surfaces that are cleanable. Okay. Um, and you've got to be able to clean them. They shouldn't have, you know, mystery hidden holes. That's where the Listeria likes to hang out. Okay. <laughs> um, and you've got to, um, Uh, you've got to address your food contact surfaces by and large differently from your non-food contact surfaces. We clean food contact surfaces every time we are going to use them. We clean non-food contact surfaces as often as necessary. Okay. Um, So next part, sanitary facilities, aka toilets. All right. I assure you, your food safety culture is well reflected in your toilets, and make sure your toilets, and where people can go to the bathroom and wash their hands. Um, are sufficient. Okay, the water has to get to 110 degrees within 10 seconds, there must be soap, there must be paper towels, there must be a way to throw things away. Um, my recommendation is that in your women's restroom, you have a covered trash receptacle, because that's just nicer to the women who work for you and in management of their menstrual cycles. <laughs> okay, people work for you, Women or people, women have menstrual cycles and they have to manage them at work, okay? Make sure that your sewage coming out of, um, your, you know, all your gray water or your black water is adequately controlled through the sewage system and you have backflow prevention, okay? Your sewers cannot back up into your food production facility, folks. (laughs) All right, um... And that's, I mean, you know, it can be super helpful to understand where your water lines are going, um, to do water line mapping, uh, that in older facilities that can really help understand, um, where problems might be coming up if your water potability tests are not coming back correctly. And of course, donate the poop, keep your water lines and your sewer lines separate. All right. Next, um, you're going to use equipment and utensils, um, and all those equipment and utensils, they have to be clean. They have to be cleanable. Um, they can't be rusty. Folks, you've got to police your equipment for rust. If you are in a ready-to-eat facility, rust is a complete no-go. Rust is a terrible idea everywhere else. Um, and make sure that you have a good preventative maintenance program to make sure your facility does not fall into your food. Okay? Um, Equipment also goes towards, um also includes things like your cali- your um, your thermometers, all the stuff that needs to be calibrated. Um, all of that stuff has to be kept clean before you use it. Don't take your water activity meter, use it, put it away, and don't clean it. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who are using air in your food production, you know you're you're modifying atmospheric packaging or something like that. You've got to create um, a way to make sure that that air is clean all right, that um, you've got to have, um, you've got to have thermometers, Um, those thermometers have to um, work, Um, They have to be accuracy checked, all that, um, all that good sort of stuff and time temperature control, you know, because at the base of it, when we keep hot foods hot and cold foods cold, uh, we control for pathogen growth. And a lot of good manufacturing practices are designed um, around controlling for pathogen growth. All right. Because again, remember GMPs. Create the conditions to create safe food, and when we get into hazards and hazard analysis, the reason we focus on this is because if your GMPs are working, they make hazards not reasonably likely to occur, or an FDA parlance, known or reasonably foreseeable. If they're not known or reasonably foreseeable, if they're not reasonably likely to occur, you don't have to control for them. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and then your life within your preventive controls plan or your hazard plan is much, much, much easier. Okay. Um, GMPs address process and controls. These are how you actually go about manufacturing your food and preventing cross contamination. So here's the short version. Do not let your raw product contaminate your finished product. Okay. And contamination can come in many, many forms food contact services, equipment and utensils, or people. All right. And make sure you don't have allergen cross contact. All right, that is a super big deal. If you use one of the big eight allergens, we're going to have a whole podcast on allergens coming up super soon. Um, and you've got to make sure that your allergens don't have uh, cross contact. This um, cross-contamination and that sort of thing um, gets into a lot of rework. If you take rework in and redo it, um, if you have product that circles through the facility, you've got a, uh, um a harder road ahead of you in terms of maintaining, um, uh, maintaining, um, separation and, and, um, keeping finished products from or unfinished products from contaminating finished products. That's what we're really, um, that's what we're really worried about. All right. It's cross contamination and making sure that, that all your raw materials, all your raw supplies are not coming into contact with your finished product supplies. Okay. Um, when we are looking at doing process controls for the control of generally microbes, um, cause those are the ones that we can, we can process out of our process out of our food. You have to make sure that, um, those measures, you know, those actions, um, are Adequate. Okay. And they use the word adequate because they have to be able to do the job and you have to be able to prove that they are doing the job. Okay. So if you are cooking something, you have to know that you are cooking it to a point where you're killing the microbes. Most of that is done within your preventive controls planning or your HACCP planning. And we'll get to that. But there's part of the GMP that says your cooking step has to be adequate. And a lot of times if you are getting getting written up by the FDA or the USDA, um, they can come back to that and use that as a finding against you. All right. Um, when you have all sorts of filling and assembling and packaging of a variety of kinds of treated food, you have to make sure that you are not applying raw materials to finished materials. And the biggest thing about this is spices, okay? Your spices have to go through a kill step if you have a ready-to-eat food or have some other reasonable assurance that you're not, you know, in this case, probably putting salmonella on your on your finished food, okay? So keep that in mind when you're designing your product. Are you taking raw nuts and putting them on your finished product? And if so, what happens to the finishness of your product, because raw products have pathogens in them. We cook things to make sure that they are not raw. Now, if raw product is your finished product, you have a higher burden in front of you. You still cannot put food with microbes out there in the marketplace. It's still considered adulterated, even if your product is considered raw. Okay. You've got to store and warehouse things, um, so that they don't, um, they don't get, um, exposed to hazards while they're, while they're in, um, while they're in the warehouse. Okay. Even if you have finished product, um, in packaging and it's raining in your warehouse, there's a uh, packaging fails. <laughs> okay. So make sure that you, um, Make sure that you understand um, that your heating, ventilation, your cooling, whatever has to be adequate in your warehousing space as well. Okay. One of the big changes that we had under FSMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act, is that we actually finally, and many of us were fairly happy about this, addressed the production of animal food from human food. So here in the local food movement, we, um, you know, we try and complete the cycle and we try and make sure that, um, the waste from our, our food production, we don't want to have waste for the food production, but if we can turn it into animal feeds or animal foods, um, then it's not waste. It's going, it's going towards another useful purpose, right? Um, there are now finally laws about what that means. And the short version is, is that if you are manufacturing for animal food and it's a human food byproduct. um, you have to treat that animal food so that it does not get contaminated during the warehousing and distribution process and however it is that it gets to the animal food facility okay um you've got to um you've got to make sure that um everything I mean, the, the short version is, is that you have to label stuff, you have to make sure that um, your animal food is segregated from the the human food, because the animal food is, a, you know, a human food waste stream, and you can't cross contaminate it. But, the, but you basically have to create animal food under the same good manufacturing practices. Okay, And that's super important because the number of recalls we have in animal food is super duper high. And it's so heartbreaking when you see animals get foodborne illness because it's really hard to trace. And it, I mean, it's just heartbreaking because, you know, animal food is one of our most highly manufactured foods. (laughs) And it really seems like it shouldn't have those sorts of problems. But I have treated animals back when I was doing clinical medicine who had, Foodborne illness, and it's just heartbreaking. So, if you are doing that, please, please, please understand that you basically have to manufacture your animal food to the same level that you manufacture human food, and that's to protect animal, the you know the animal uh, uh, itself, that and and the integrity of the animal foods businesses, whether you're feeding livestock or you're feeding somebody's dogs and cats. Okay, and then finally, the the last section of 117 is these things called defect action levels. Defect action levels um, are available at a URL that they have written in there. Um, and you can, if you think you have a defect action level, so like a defect action level is um, the unavoidable defects, we call them. Okay, so there are... Um, there are things that that food has that are unavoidable uh based on what how the food is is grown and holds whole and and held um and those defect action levels have are there because above that level you have to address the problem but below that level you don't because it's it's not commercially practicable to address the problem. But the thing that you must know is you cannot dilute out a um, defect action level. Okay. And so if you have a lot of product that exceeds your defect action level, you cannot mix it with another lot of product and dilute out the problem. That's a total no-go, all right? And that's a really big issue with food safety culture. (laughs) But those are the good manufacturing practices as they're given to us by our friends at the FDA, okay? Again, Title 21, of uh, the Code of Federal Regulation 117 Part B, um, we'll be covering some of the other parts in later podcasts. And for sticking around uh, for this entire podcast, um, and if you want our facility standard operating procedures, send us an email to info at dirigo food safety. That's d-i-r-i-g-o food dot com code word GMP in the title and we'll send you that facilities SOP. All right. It's been great talking to you and you guys have a great week and we will be back again next week. Have a great time. Thanks. You've been listening to Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steele on the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast. We hope you loved the show. For more information and show notes, please find us at sfbdi.com. Thanks for listening.